listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, this is Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. We recently had the honor of moderating BMO Financial Group's COVID-19 panel reopening update featuring, as always, myself, Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. We were also joined by Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory and Head of U.S. Economics, as well as John Hill, Vice President and Interest Rate Strategist for BMO Capital Markets. Before we get started on the podcast today, given that we're talking about medical information, Just a quick reminder that if you need medical advice, to please directly consult your physician and or healthcare professional. Dr. John White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. In this role, he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Most importantly, on on a near-term basis, Dr. White currently sees patients in both the Washington, D.C. and Maryland area. As such, he's a frontline soldier with respect to the war on COVID-19 coronavirus. Here are Dr. White's comments. Thank you, Brian, and good morning, everyone. Let's start with the data in terms of what's happening. You know, globally, there are over 10 million cases of COVID-19, resulting in half a million deaths. In the United States, there are 2.6 million cases with 128,000 deaths. And in Canada, we see there's 103,000 cases with over 8,000 deaths. And what's the difference? What's going on here? Um, You know, in Canada, for the last 50 days, there's actually been a steady decline in the number of cases as well as the number of deaths, a steady decline for the last 50 days. In contrast, in the United States, in the last 14 days, we've seen a steady increase in the number of cases not an increase in the number of deaths nationally, I'm gonna come back to that, but an increase in the number of cases. And in fact, the United States recently had its highest number of cases with over 40,000 new cases per day. Um, And after really having seen a a decline or a steady state, uh, we're seeing this increase primarily in 36 states primarily in the South. Um, And even in Florida alone, there's been 10,000 cases in one day. Um, So what does all of this mean? You know, those sound like sobering statistics and and how concerned should you be? You know, how do we put this, you know, all in perspective? And as I mentioned to you that, you know, we have not seen an increase in the number of deaths in the United States. And certainly we have not seen that, you know, in Canada. We have seen an increase in hospitalization rates in some cities and some counties, 
But overall, hospitalization rates have not been increasing. And um, the number of deaths, as I said, have not been increasing. But remember, the real impact is always going to be about 10 to 14 days behind when we see an increase in cases. So what's explaining this increase in the number of cases? And many of you may have been hearing this on the news. Is it due to increased testing? And there is some element that you're going to find more cases when you test more. But here's the important measure that you want to look at when you're trying to determine what's the uh, infection rate in, in your local area. It's about the number of positive cases. And in general, you want the percentage of people who test positive. Really, ideally, you want it around 5%, definitely below 10%. But here's what's happening in those cities and regions where they're having increased cases. They're also having increase in the percentage of positivity. So what that tells us me, what tells us is that there's virus in that community, in that testing region, and it's actually increasing. So that's something that we need to be mindful of. And in actuality, uh, Florida has had decrease in terms of the number of daily testing. So we do know the virus, you know, is spreading, but there's no need to have alarm as well in terms of when we look at data, because that's what we want to be driven by, is we talk about COVID, where are the data and, and what should we um, be doing? So we do know lately there's been a greater infection rate in younger people, and we're defining younger, you'll be glad to know it's 18 to 35 in that age group. And in general, uh, persons in the 18 to 35 age group do pretty good. That doesn't mean that they don't feel sick, they don't feel lousy, but they typically um, don't require having to get on a ventilator. The concern that we have is that as young people get infected and they tend to even be asymptomatic, uh, are they spreading it to persons who are at greater risk? the elderly, those that are immunocompromised, those with significant heart disease or, or diabetes or asthma. So that, that's the real concern that we have. So, so what do we do about all of this? And, and I'm going to be completely direct you know, and honest. We know that masks and facial coverings work. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion about recommendations. You may remember, certainly in the United States, we talked about not wearing facial coverings or masks early on, but as we got more data, as we got more supplies, those recommendations changed. But there's been a lot of missteps in terms of communicating the information, and the shortages actually exacerbated that. And, you know, if you're looking on social media and other areas, there's a lot of people that are saying that masks don't work, they're causing more deaths, they're causing infections, and, and you know what? If you really felt that way, you could find one piece of data somewhere that might be able to support you, even if it was weak data. But here's the important point, the totality of the evidence. And that's what we always want to look at. What's the, you know, the, the majority of the literature? It shows that masks and facial coverings work. So we need to be wearing those. When we go out, we need to encourage others to wear them as well. You know, what else has happened, you know, since we last talked? And in, in terms of, if you remember, for those folks that might have been participated in the previous calls, we had a lot of talk about antibody testing. 
and how originally early on we thought that antibody testing would provide a mechanism or a vehicle to get back to work. Because if people tested positive for antibodies, we assumed that meant that they were uh, immune from further infection and they could go back to work. We even talked about they would provide a shield or we'd have these you know, immunity passports. We're not having those conversations anymore. Uh, we do know that there are challenges with antibody testing. Uh, we need more validation of those tests. And we also need to understand better um, how long the presence of antibodies uh, may confer protection. Uh, we do know that it's, that it's likely that it pro provides some level of protection, just as uh, other coronaviruses does in terms of SARS and MERS. But we need to know more information. So right now, antibody testing is not going to be the solution to get back to work. And no one should change their behavior based on, you know, either a positive or a negative antibody test. So that's an important point. There's going to be further study. But also keep in mind, you know, these tests are iterative. We didn't have anything, you know, in January, six months ago. And here, you know, we're having innovation in testing. We're not where we need to be but it's going to continue to iterate. Let's talk a little bit about treatment because even, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen a uh, movement in, in terms of a treatment and there's been more data reported out on various drugs, but it's also important to note from an FDA perspective that there are no approved treatments for COVID. There can be some emergency use authorizations, but there's no approved treatments. And there's some, you know, additional data that occurred a couple of weeks ago on remdesivir, but also, you know, that's really about decreased amount of time in the hospital, uh, recovery time, typically for those, you know, on ventilators. The new data has revolved around dexamethasone uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a steroid. Uh, most of the data are particularly on those people that are on ventilators. But we're also seeing, you know, a lot of progress on drugs like to uh, uh which is for rheumatoid arthritis. It's involved in, you know, interleukin-6. We've seen cytokine storm issue. I'm not going to get into all the specifics, but it's important to point out that we've had a lot of progress on therapeutic interventions. Uh, we've seen the role of decentralized trials. We've seen more regulatory flexibility in real-world data. So those are all good signs in terms of treatment. Um, and that's what's important. We have multiple drugs in development on multiple fronts and multiple trials going on. And I expect by the end of summer, we'll have more data. I've talked about vaccines from the very beginning. And, and full disclosure, my former boss from the FDA, Janet Woodcock, is on um, the development group, which is called Operation Warp Speed in the United States. And, and I will tell you that even in their discussions, they talk about January 2021, which is actually the winter not the fall. So we've even moved from the discussion of having a vaccine ready for the fall. Their goal is Operation Warp Speed, as some of you may know, is having at least 300 million doses of a safe and effective vaccine. And I've been pretty consistent all along that I do have some reservations about the availability of a safe and effective vaccine. And using history as our guide, it typically requires tens of thousands of patients to participate uh, in a uh, clinical trial on vaccines. And I had a conversation with Dr. Schaffner, who's a uh, professor of infectious disease at Vanderbilt, one of the foremost authorities on vaccine development. And he points out 
if you think about, you know, the history of vaccines, 10, 20 years, those were the easy ones that we were able to find a vaccine for. So just keep that in mind. There are seven candidates um, currently under uh, further development. So that, that's important to keep in mind. We just don't have one. But what I want to point out and I want you to think about, we have to dissociate this idea of reopening to the presence of a vaccine. And, and that's what we need to really focus on um, you know, in our future conversations. We thought that heat and humidity would really cause dissipation of the virus. We're not seeing that right now. So how do we live with the virus? How do we have a true discussion of risk? Um, I don't want you to think it's all doom and gloom. You know, on the, on the health side, on the medical side, we have started to see a return of elective surgeries, 10 to 13%, typically on a weekly basis. We're seeing a satisfaction with telehealth on the part of physicians and patients, but we're all seeing, also seeing more patients go back to a physical appointment with a doctor. This is going to take months to get back to, you know, the capacity for elective surgery. We're talking about, you know, four months uh, down the line. We're also seeing, you know, medication refills, which is a good sign. But what I want to see is us really to have a much deeper discussion of risk. Who's really at risk from getting COVID-19? Who's at risk for hospitalization and death? We want to look at where are infection rates occurring. We need to look at data more locally. We have that ability, but we haven't spent enough time focusing on county by county, area, province by province, area, and we need to do that. But in the meantime, we need to keep those strategies of public health that we know work, which is the use of masks and facial coverings, physical distancing of, of two meters, six feet, uh, as well as hand washing. You know, and real quickly, we're, we're focusing on contact tracing. In the United States, it's actually back more to old school of, of using physical persons to do that. There's been some talk of apps. There's been some challenges with adoption. It'll be interesting to see what happens in Canada. Canada has announced, as some of you may know, uh, a deal with BlackBerry and Shopify to have a COVID alert um, app. That's different than contact tracing, technically. It's actually an exposure notification. So we'll see how that does in, in helping making people aware of exposure in their area. So lots of progress since March. I, I know uh, people may be concerned about the number of cases that are occurring in the United States. As I pointed out at the beginning, Canada is doing very well in, in terms of cases and deaths. And it's really about just staying vigilant um, and, and not reopening too quickly and trying to return uh, to pre-COVID, because that's not going to happen for quite some time. We do have a new normal, and I look forward to answering questions. Now to Michael Gregory, BMO's Deputy Chief Economist and Chief Economist with respect to United States economic research. He recently published America's Post-Pandemic Economic Prospects. Here are Michael Gregory's comments. All right, so uh, here we are. We're, we're past the recession. It was the shortest recession uh, in, 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 in on record. Uh, and unfortunately, it was the deepest recession for both the United States and Canada since uh, in the post-war period, which means it's the deepest, most severe recession since the Great Depression. 
Now, we know as states and provinces have opened up, the recovery has unfolded through May and June, and that's going to continue in the months and quarters ahead. Uh, we're starting to see that in the jobs already. Uh, you know, we lost 22.1 million jobs in the U.S. through uh, uh, March and April, and we got back slightly more than 11% of those in, uh, in May in Canada. Uh, we lost 3 million jobs. We got slightly less than 10% of those back in May. Now, we do get jobs numbers in the U.S. Uh, later to, uh, this week on Friday. We're looking for a 3.5 million increase after the 2.5 million we had uh, previously. So that'll put us up to a 27% recovery in terms of all those jobs. We get the Canadian job numbers next week, but presumably they're going to be sort of comparable. So that sort of begs the question now, when are we going to get back all the jobs lost during the recession? When are we going to get back all the GDP lost during the recession as well? And, uh, and I think if you put this in a little bit of historical context, and if you look now from a GDP perspective, uh, for both Canada and the United States, the longest recovery period from a recession was uh, from the Great Recession. It was eight quarters in the United States, six quarters in Canada to get back all the GDP loss. So that becomes the benchmark. And then the question is, are we going to be slower or faster than that benchmark? Well, one thing to keep in mind here, we've had a tremendous amount of uh, fiscal and monetary policy stimulus. And because of that support, uh, massive amounts of support, support that was unprecedented in terms of not only its size, but how quickly it was put into uh, play, that that is gonna provide a tremendous tailwind for the economy. So we don't think we're actually gonna surpass the length of those uh, prior recoveries. We take maybe a, get close to it, but I don't think we'll actually surpass it. Uh, and, uh, but that's you know, a little consolation because we do think there are some significant headwinds in the economy that will prevent, you know, a much faster recovery. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, this is probably going to end up being, you know, if not the, probably the second slowest recovery in the post-war period for both Canada and the United States. So what are some of these headwinds that we're facing now? Because they're critically important. And the first of those is we happen to think in the absence of a vaccine or an effective treatment or herd immunity, we don't think that business and consumer confidence will fully recover. And because of that, you know, confidence-dependent uh, uh, activities like CapEx, uh, big-ticket household purchases, they aren't going to recover back to pre-COVID levels anytime soon. Now, in fact, when we've seen these cases surging in the United States, I think that just reinforces the fact that where we're vulnerable here in terms of the recovery is, in fact, from a confidence perspective. Secondly, and there's kind of five factors I think I, I like to focus on here. The second of those is the fact that uh, a lot of the people who lost their jobs aren't going to be the people that are going to get them back. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, businesses, you know, are, will have operating constraints going forward. Uh, think restaurants, they can't hire back all the people they had before because they're not operating at the same level of capacity they had before. Unfortunately, some businesses will go out of business, so they aren't hiring again. And we do think that in this new normal, many firms are going to use this occasion to look at, you know, how they do things and maybe push for some efficiencies some cost savings and perhaps cut personnel that way as well. So at the end of the day, this persistent joblessness is going to weigh on consumer confidence even further and dampen uh, consumer spending just, just a little bit more. And of course, you think about the higher joblessness, uh, weaker confidence, that points to a, a path for uh, uh, savings rates that probably be higher than it was before the pandemic. And as a result, that too is a bit of a headwind on, uh, on growth. Uh, you look at the business sector. There's one thing that's pretty pretty clear here is that uh, most of the, of the a lot of the government measures directed towards businesses involve some kind of a loan. Now most or all of that is going to be forgiven. But if you look at the central banks, 
all of the measures they've done in terms of their asset purchases have been designed to support the credit creation process, which means that the legacy of this great uh, this recession of ours is going to be higher levels of private sector debt, which means higher debt payments going forward. And that's even if interest rates don't rise, and we don't think they will rise. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, some of those higher debt burdens are going to result in increased insolvencies and bankruptcies as well. So that's another headwind uh, for the economy. A fourth one is on the government side. Now, we're not looking for any major shift at the federal government level, either in Canada, United States, and towards, you know, r- removing accommodation. A lot of the accommodation that's in there now has, has, has some longe- uh, has, uh, has some built-in, uh, uh, you know, uh, decline in it. And in fact, these, these programs and a lot of these uh, measures will, will be exhausted anyway. Uh, but where we do see some, some headwind really coming in terms of having to shift the, uh, uh, moving away from an accommodator to a contractionary policy is at the state and local level in the United States, where many uh, jurisdictions do have balanced budget requirements. And it's not surprising that some of these new measures, such as the HEROES Act coming through Congress right now, in fact, are looking to add a lot more uh, to uh, state and local government support to prevent the kind of layoffs that are likely to result as you get fiscal consolidation at that level of government. And the last factor I'd like to focus on is slower global growth. And, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, we can't really rely on exports that provide that extra support for activity that we've had in previous recoveries. And on top of that, that slower growth means that global commodity prices won't recover to the same degree, which, of course, is going to weigh on things like oil prices, critically important for the Canadian, also the U.S. economy. And on top of that, we got this whole issue about um, uh, 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 heating up of the global trade war, which uh, further sort of dampens the outlook for global trade. So all of these headwinds counter, not completely, but a, a large part of the tailwinds coming from fiscal and monetary stimulus. And as a result, we're going to have a, a long recovery, but not the longest recovery. In fact, we do think by the end of next year, we'll probably be back at full recovery in Canada, the early part of 2022 in the United States. But given that's where we are for the whole economy, the question then is asked, then, will, will all the sectors of the economy perform the same? And a large part of the economy, in fact, will perform the same. They'll kind of skate along with the whole economy. But there will be some sectors that will underperform. Uh, and underperform significantly. We think that, for example, and, and you, know, you can round up the usual suspects on this one. You're talking about uh, 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 food services and uh, accommodation, uh, uh, airline travel, uh, uh, arts, entertainment, and recreation are all areas of the economy that are crowd dependent and therefore unlikely to fully recover, even when the whole economy is back, uh, uh, has fully recovered. Another area, because of the global issues, is going to be oil and gas. But at the same time, you've got some sectors that are going to perform. You've got some that are going to do much better, are going to lead the economy. And first and foremost of those uh, will be sort of uh, health care and social assistance. You know, uh, the backlogs of medical procedures and medical activity that's going to happen is going to push that part uh, of the economy to grow much faster than other parts. Another area I think will get tremendous growth is going to be the information and communications technology. You know, the adoption of, of existing technologies, particularly about people that really hadn't adopted those technologies before during the pandemic, has provided a, 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 an acceleration for further advances, I think, in this area. And it's, it's going to lead growth further. A final area I think to think about is, is also on uh, uh, food stores and beverage stores. 
Uh, and, you know, with restaurants not going to be fully recovered, you know, obviously people will still continue to be cooking at home and, and uh, mastering their culinary skills. But it's even interesting. You think about the commercial real estate area where, where it used to be a shopping mall anchored with a couple of general merchandisers was considered ideal. Now I think you know, the paradigm has changed a little bit where you want to have a couple of large grocers, uh, you know, uh, bookending uh, that mall in order to generate the kind of traffic you would like to see. And finally, I think the sort of the, the, uh, the warehousing sector, you know, given the, 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 the continued shift towards online shop- shopping will be another area which will outperform the economy. The bottom line here is whenever you get these massive disruptions in the economy, it tends to take some of the trends that were actually unfolding already in the economy and, and, it, and it either, you know, kind of exacerbates them. And I think where we see that most profoundly is in the, you know, t- the technology side. It's going to take those, those changes that were already unfolding that were inherently disinflationary. And it's going to accelerate them even further. But another trend that was unfolding before the pandemic is sort of a, 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 a reduction in globalization, whether it was because of the global trade war or the income inequality that was emerging a lot of the, in, in developed countries. Uh, that seems to provide a little extra momentum as well. At the end of the day, we will recover, and and the economy is going to be a little bit different when we get there. But it doesn't prevent us from growing at a relatively healthy pace down the road. Here's a quick summary of Dr. White's discussion. Number one, globally, there have been over 10 million cases of COVID-19 coronavirus, with more than 500,000 deaths. In the U.S. alone, there have been 2.5 million cases with over 125,000 deaths. And in Canada, 100,000 cases with 8,500 deaths. While there has been a steady decline in the number of cases and deaths in Canada, the U.S. has seen a steady rise over the last two weeks, with a record high 40,000 new cases per day in the last several days. However, overall hospitalization and the number of deaths are down. It's a very important point. Number two point in terms of Dr. White's comments There's an increase in the number of cases, partially due to more testing, but we are also seeing an increase in the percentage of people who test positive, which indicates the virus is spreading in particular regions, meaning the South and Southwest especially. There have been higher infection rates among younger people, 18 to 35 years old, but most of these cases do not require medical intervention. Nonetheless, the risk exists that they could spread it to people that are actually high risk. Third point from Dr. White. The totality of evidence suggests that masks and facial coverings are effective in reducing the spread of COVID-19 coronavirus. Antibody testing, which initially was thought to prevent people with such antibodies from contracting COVID and potentially providing a solution, requires further validation and is not expected to be considered a solution at this point. Number four in terms of Dr. White's major points, while a number of drugs are being investigated, the FDA has not approved any treatments for COVID to date. There have been a lot of progress in terms of therapeutic intervention and actually seven drug candidates are currently under development. The plan from here is to be able to provide at least 300 million doses of a vaccine by January 2021. Fifth and final point from Dr. White, going forward, it'll be important to de-associate the idea of reopening to the presence of a vaccine. There needs to be a true discussion of risk and how we can learn to live with a vaccine. But we remain positive in that there has been a lot of progress made since March, and we have a number of positive developments, including a vaccine, in the pipeline. Now, here's a summary of Michael Gregory's major discussion points in his comments. Currently, we, the economy, 
They're in the shortest and deepest recession in the post-war period. 22.1 million jobs were lost in March and April, and 10% recovered in May. A further increase is expected in June, bringing up the total of recovered jobs to 27%. Number two point, the longest recovery period in history was eight quarters after the Great Depression. It was six quarters in Canada, actually. However, the tremendous fiscal and monetary stimulus should provide tailwinds, and we do not expect the recovery to surpass that of the Great Depression. That said, we are expecting the second slowest recovery in the post-war period, given the following five headwinds to the current recovery. Number one headwind, in the absence of a vaccine, business and consumer confidence will not fully recover, including big ticket items and business expansion. Number two headwind, persistent joblessness, meaning people who lost their jobs during the pandemic, will not get those back given many businesses will actually close down and firms will look for cost savings and efficiency. Third headwind to the recovery, higher levels of private sector debt will result in increased insolvencies. Fourth headwind, or government policies, will become contradictory as states will continue to have budget constraints and restrictions. Lastly, slower global growth stemming from low commodity prices and global trade war concerns will weigh down on the recovery. Third major point for Michael Gregory's comments, we expect certain sectors will underperform and outperform in the near to midterm. Food services, accommodation, airline travel, arts and entertainment are sectors that are crowd dependent, as well as oil and gas related sectors will likely suffer. On the flip side, healthcare and social assistance, medical information, communications technology, and of course warehousing sectors should outperform from an economic perspective. Number four major point, and lastly from Michael Gregory, we believe any kind of massive disruption such as COVID-19 coronavirus tends to accelerate trends that were already unfolding. In this case, technology and the reduction of globalization seems to be providing the upside and downside momentum. Thank you for joining us. Please reach out to your BMO Relationship Manager to receive content from myself, Dr. White, Michael Gregory, and John Hill. Thanks again, and as always, be safe and be well. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or Visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.